With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, I'm super excited. I've wanted to have Mike Prada on for a long time. Mike joined us over at The Athletic, what, six months ago? Something like that. May, eight months ago? sometime. What month is it? It's October now. Is that what? Yeah, month six it months is? ago. Holy shit! I nailed it. Wait, let's go. It? Five months. We got to work Five on months. the math. God damn it, Mike. We got to work on the math. I'm sorry. Oh man. Always an editor. Um, what can I say? Yeah, you are. But Mike is Mike is a terrific editor, first and foremost, and I've really enjoyed working with him. Uh, but he's also a terrific basketball mind who just wrote a book, Spaced Out, which comes out November first. Look at this thing. He's holding it in his hand if you're watching on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's Mike Prada. What's going hey. on, buddy? Good. How are you? Good morning. How yeah, are you? It's beautiful. It's beautiful 818 uh, here in cloudy Melbourne. I'm supposed to be going. We just had a long conversation about cricket before we started recording. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be going to my first ever cricket match tonight, Australia Ooh. versus England. But I'm a little bit worried that it's going to get rained out, unfortunately. So... We'll have to yeah. see. It's kind of like baseball where, you know, rainouts happen and you, know, you got to like deal retra- with it. You don't have retractable domes in cricket? That's a whole other conversation that people <laughs> here and in the Indian subcontinent are having a meltdown about because there is literally a stadium next door that has a roof that they are not moving these games to for some ungodly reason while the country is in the middle of la nina uh here in melbourne so okay that's very odd you're, you're, is there like a certain shape of the cricket field that like doesn't work with this they're both they're both cricket fields so cricket fields are not homogenous like it's mm. like baseball fields kind of insofar as each one has its own dimensions um you know the base paths in baseball are the same the wicket length is the same in mm. cricket but it's yeah, like there's there's no reason that you couldn't play these games like under the dome at mm. Marvel Stadium, but for Maybe. whatever reason, they're huh. just not doing it. Maybe it'll hit the uh, stanchion like that. What that Patriots quarterbacks pass supposedly hit, or the ESPN it camera. Was. Okay, maybe I'm like screwing this up. Didn't Mac Jones's pass like hit the ESPN like sort of camera? Okay. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I, I'm trying to sound like I know other sports, but I don't. No other sport. <laughs> no basketball. Well, it's good because you wrote a book on basketball, and I'm super excited about it. I have read. It's funny, like you've sent me like a chapter here and a chapter there, and then you told me to read chapter four before we had the discussion that we're going to have today. So I've read 25 percent of the book in different areas but haven't read like all of the book yet in a single like fashion. It's it's kind of hard when it's not out yet, you know, how would you possibly have been able to do that? Well, the the good news is that I have sources, AKA Mm. you sending me the book. (laughs) Yo, don't out me. Yo, don't help me. Like, is this how we treat our actual sources? (laughs) (laughs) Damn. 
Oh my. Um, this is going to be great though. So our goal today, we're going to talk first about Mike's book and just kind of what the premise of Mike's book is. And then we're going to dive in and talk a little bit more about just kind of modern roster building is maybe the best way to put it. I kind of threw this idea to Mike and neither of us really know how to answer the question yet. So we're just going to talk through it as we're talking about it. But my vague idea was basically what NBA rosters currently best espouse modern basketball principles, because Mike's book is all about the evolution of basketball over the course of Realistically, like for instance, in chapter four, you go through history and talk about the evolution of basketball, but specifically it's over the last five to 10 years, let's call it, right? Yeah, I would say about 2014-ish is kind of where we're where we're talking about. But yeah, that, that one chapter, we're literally talking from James Naismith's gym all the way to now. So you know, there's right. a whole lot of stuff in there. But yeah, no, I mean, the premise of the book is essentially that just in the last eight years the sport has changed more than it ever has since the shot clock. And I would argue that even maybe more than the shot clock era, although that's a tough argument to make. Uh, Just, I mean, imagine you have a court that's this big. I can do this now because I'm on YouTube. I've done this analogy a lot of times with other podcasts. They can't see me. You can actually see me. It's great. Imagine that the court was always this big, the surface area of the court. And then all of a sudden, because people got religion on the three point shot, it became this big, but you didn't add more people to fill that space. That essentially happened over eight years. I mean, you all know, like, sort of what the three point attempt rate has done in those eight years, how it's basically doubled, how it's exploded, how in 2016, the Warriors were like the one team that shot, I forget what the exact stat I had, 35 threes in a game and or per game or 33s per game, and how. Five years later, all but one team shot 33s a game. Like, you know that. Now the question is, okay, that's extended the court. How has that changed literally the entire theory of the sport, going from strategy to players to whatever? And so it's actually kind of interesting, this question of, like, modern basketball principles, because the first thing to probably do is figure out what we mean by modern. Yeah. I think that the idea of modern – in my mind is going to be constantly evolving from this point forward. Right. Like, you know, you mentioned that within the last eight years, the game has drastically changed. I think it's going to continue to drastically change, which, you know, maybe in five or 10 minutes, we can talk about like how that impacts my job as a draft analyst and almost makes it even more foolhardy to do what I do. Uh, if you but, care about being right, I suppose, if you just care about like kind of giving people insight, I think it's actually the best time. Yeah, no, totally. And uh, I'm somewhere in the middle, I think, okay, of fair enough. competitive it's, nature. It's never um, good to be wrong. And in fact, I kind of hope that what you're saying that's going to change a ton in the next five years is somewhat wrong, because part of the premise of the book is that we have had a fundamental change, and now we are going to go back to incremental changes. So I hope, yeah. you're, I hope that's what it is, because that would undercut what you're saying would undercut the premise of what I, what I wrote about. So, well, and, and you know, it's right. interesting because I feel like there, it's like a two pronged front in terms of the way that basketball has shifted. Let's call it right. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, it's almost like it, it the math of the three point shot, right? Because mm-hmm. for instance, when you play ones and twos in basketball, um, just, uh, you know, and, 
the backyard, like, you know, it, where, wherever, if you're just playing at a local gym, wherever you're just getting a run in, right? The two point shot is worth a hundred times, uh, is worth two times what the one point shot is. The mm-hmm. three point shot in the NBA is worth 150% of the two point shot, which makes the math in the NBA for teams that can shoot just so much drastically harder mm-hmm. to deal with. E- even this is why teams like the Lakers that, I mean, have we seen a worse shooting team in the last, you know, five or six years? Honestly, probably not. Uh, yeah, right? probably not. Probably not. Well, it, let's put it this way. A worse shooting team that actually shoots threes. Yeah, but they have to act. But I guess that's right. my point. Yeah, yeah. The, the way that the league is now, you have to take those threes. Even if you're not a great shooting team, you kind of have to take those threes because if they're open, they are still just even if you're going to shoot 30% on them, it still ends up that you're coming out ahead. Or if you're going to shoot 32% on them, you're probably coming out ahead still over the longer haul. Um, even if, you know, if a team shoots eight for 30 from three, or let's say, you know, yeah, nine for 30 from three, it's still probably going to end up being better for you than taking those 30 shots from the two point distance, just because teams are going to be able to crunch down on you. It's going to be way Mm -hmm. harder to score from two point range. And that's where the second part comes in, in terms of this two prong front. It's, it's also the space, which is what you get into in terms of just like, you know, this is the other chapter of your book that I've read. Um, Just how difficult it is to guard in space now and how, yeah, difficult teams have made it and how even more than the offensive end of the floor, I think where the revolution is coming in the NBA is on the defensive end of the floor. Now trying to figure out that that's where the adjustment comes into play. Now it, it's the offensive game. Like, I don't know how much more you can adjust it and I don't know how much more we can go toward like an equilibrium of threes versus twos. Like maybe we're not quite there at like perfect efficiency yet for certain teams. I think we're pretty close. I think, but I think we're pretty close. I think we're much farther away from that on defense where we still haven't totally figured out how to defend in space yet, because it's still so novel in a lot of ways across the league that it it is really, it's almost like a changing paradigm you know, team by team basis where teams are trying to figure out how to manage it. Yeah. I mean, there there are a few ways to take this convo. I mean, the thing about defense and about space is, I mean, I I go back to the very first thing I said, easier to defend this much space with five guys in this much space. I mean, on a fundamental level, if you double the playing surface, and I think I had like a whole math equation in my intro of like kind of surface area of the court, like kind of height by width by whatever, like, if you just sort of say, like, we're playing our possessions in this much space versus that much space, and you have the same number of players to fill it, it's going to be hard for the same number of players to fill that space. Like, that's just reality. And I think we have to adjust a little bit. When we talk about defensive innovation, I think we have to sort of adjust to the new normal, which is it's going to be harder to play defense all the time, no matter what yes. strategies exist, no matter what. I mean, and then you add on to the fact that even though we're talking about half court play which is being extended and there is an upper limit to 
you know, you can't go behind the backcourt line. One of the other things right. that's that's discussed in this chapter is this what I call this merging of the fast break and the half court set, where now everybody's just yeah. playing faster all the time. And so it essentially is like when you grab a defensive rebound, even if the other team is back, you are essentially running a ninety foot or was it ninety four by fifty foot half court position. Yeah. And, no, and you, that's your you fast are. break. And that's essentially so everybody's playing faster. So that that's a paradigm shift uh, for sure. But I, I mean, we talk about sort of like kind of innovation and all of these things. I think we have to kind of go go back to just why wasn't if it was all about math, why didn't this mm-hmm. happen sooner? Right. That's the question I get a lot. Right. If this is all about I mean, I have a quote from Red Holtzman in the book from 1979 that's like yeah we if we shoot more threes it'll open up more space to the big man which like so they knew this they knew it made <laughs> sense the question is why a lot of people ask me like why did it take so long to kind of get to that point and i think the biggest reason and the biggest thing that the sons and i, I sort of tell this story of the sons of d'antoni kind of breaking off into two sects of the same religion one sect being and, and them engaging what I call a holy war. The Warriors is one sector, the Rockets is the other. Where the Rockets yep. are very yep. much like, hey man, three is more than two. Like, we just gotta shoot more of these. It's just math. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, obviously, to a significant degree, but you know, I just, when you think about a religion, like, it kind of, it's much more of the science end of the suns. You're, you're distilling it into principles. Yeah, basically. that's the science end, whereas the Warriors, it's very much the art end of, like, and this is the part that I think it explains why the league kind of got it all at once in these last eight years. Once they realized that the three-point line wasn't just a three-point line to make more shots from, but a chaos engine. Like, if if we make you have to guard out here, you're going to make it easier to go here. Like the, And all the different ways you could leverage that. And most importantly, and I think this is the biggest kind of thing that's changed and why I don't think whatever we get in the next five years is going to be as significant as what we have just received. You got to take a lot of them for people to honor you. Yeah. Like if you, you got to show that you're willing to pull at any moment at any time, because everything that was happening in the 20 something years, 30 years before Seth Curry and Steve Kerr met up and they built this blending melting pot offense was, you know, we got the ball inside and then we kicked it out and we were open. But if you like kind of present this, you have to present the threat to profit off it. And I think that's the fundamental change that has made the three point line and thus extended the court the way it has over the last eight years. And I think that change was a lot harder for people to wrap their minds around than three is more than two. So, Given that the only way the court can be extended is if you actually use the parts, the is you use yeah. the suburbs, you know what I mean? No, so I yeah. think that's what's kind of happened. And now, to your point, like defenses are starting to try to figure out, like, how do we guard this much space when like the two most dangerous areas are all the way over here, right by the basket, and all the way out here at the three point line? Right. How do we guard? How do we somehow make it so that we are covering both of those areas? That's the fundamental question that defense is trying to answer. And it's going to be, you're right. It's going to be interesting to see how that develops. I think you're right that the change will not be as fundamental as mm-hmm. it has been over the last 
you know, eight years, let's say even, you know, yeah, probably, probably eight years. Let's say when did, when did Golden so, State go on their Stephen Clay run? That, that's probably so that, right. That was, so that was definitely the big catalyst. I mean, they're, the book tells the story of a lot of events that led to the Warriors and the Rockets rivalry and that sort of whole thing. Uh, that's was 2014. I mean, there's a whole section on the Spurs of the year before. There's a lot on the Suns, yeah. obviously. There's stuff on Don Nelson. There's stuff on LeBron and the Heatles. I mean, you, there's a lot of different things. There's a lot on the illegal defense rule change of 2001. I think that's a major driver of the reshaping of the geometry of the floor. But yeah, the way I would put it is I think it was in 2011, the percentage of shots that were threes was lower than 2008. It was was about the same. So like basically three-point attempts were going like this, this, this. They had a little spike for the when they moved the line in in 1995 and that it was kind of gradual and leveling off. And then suddenly it just sort of went like, I'm sorry, this is a visual medium, right? I can do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I think my we're arm is going it. my arm is going way up. So that I would more say- people will listen to this as a podcast, but yeah, no, for sure. Like yeah. that's I, I would say that's like 2014-ish. So um, but you know, you could set the boundary at a lot of different places, but that's where I set it. Yeah, and I I think you're right to say it like 2014-ish. And you mentioned the idea of like trying to defend in space. And that, that is, that is to me just like the, the thing that like, I, I think we still haven't figured out. Like we still haven't, like I said, we still haven't hit that boundary yet. Um, mm-hmm. We're not even close to it. I don't yeah. think. Interesting. Um, you don't think so? Just in, uh, no, I don't. Because I, I think that a lot of this comes back to player development, right? Like a lot of this comes right, back to, yeah. you know, player development in terms of like guys getting these skills down at a younger age is always going to be behind the natural, like stylistic adjustments across the league. Right. So someone like someone like miles Turner, who came into the league in 2014, 2015. Yeah. Memory serves. Yeah. Yeah. Miles Turner came up as a big man who could kind of shoot, Texas didn't really know what to do with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there just wasn't like a lot of, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of coaching from the time that he was young that knew what to do with this seven footer who is an elite rim protector who could defend, who had a seven foot four wingspan, who could like struggle to run the floor a little bit at the time. Doesn't really have that problem anymore, but like n- nobody really needed, knew what to do with him from a perimeter sense. And I think that like, you see that now in his development where mm-hmm. he is now like a 33% three point shooter and teams don't really guard him out there. Right. Like they, they don't really care. It's a win for the defense. If he shoots a three, I feel like, right. I would. Yeah. I mean, I think the more important addition to that is that he never really learned how to be a quick decision maker in space. Also that. Yeah. So and that's where I was going to go next. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that's the the thing that there was sort of a period, I think to your point where a lot of kind of bigs were taught how to shoot, but like it was too late to teach him how to read the, the whole floor. Right. And, you know, actually there, there's also that element of it. And the one guy I think of a lot in this conversation who is actually healthy now, but has obviously dealt with a lot of injuries. Cause I, I also think of biomechanics a lot where guys who 
were we we had a great story that is I remember working on with Seert Zoe and at SV Nation yeah. years ago and it's cited in the book about like kind of all these big men having to kind of get leaner to move in space and how do they make it so that their legs can hold up their frame. Right. Uh focus a lot on Anthony Davis who in in some ways I think almost is like this it's so fascinating watching him. I wasn't thinking of him, but this is a guy that like in 2012 was like the future of the game. Right. And in 2015 was like, this guy is going to solve every problem. And almost the speed of which the game has evolved almost got, it's not like Anthony Davis is yeah. like kind of uh, archaic, but like he's no longer everybody to some degree, if you're a big has to do some of the things he does. So He's almost like kind of was the generation that got a little skipped over from like kind of yeah, like I, to mainstream. Yeah, like I feel like he gets maligned for, oh, man, like Anthony Davis, like never really developed a jump shot that's consistent, except for the bubble where everyone shot better. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, it's a weird situation. Anthony Davis is kind of like the exact paradigm of what I'm talking about defensively, where I think that like guys like Anthony Davis are going to be incredibly valuable defensively, but you're right that he got lost offensively. Anthony Davis is like one of the few guys that can really guard in space, can block shots at the rim, can actually cover all of that ground. Sometimes when he's not injured, when he's not hurt. Yeah, of course. Which is, I think the um, rub in a lot of cases for Anthony Davis too, because yeah. the guy I think about a lot with this actually is Chris Asporzingis. I feel like he's one that's of those guys. Guy. That's yes. the guy where I think he maybe came along five years too early because when he, I mean, he was the first player to be called a unicorn, right? Yeah. Um, by Kevin Durant. And for a while it was like, he was this almost like kind of Anthony Davis has referred to him. I think of those two together because Anthony Davis has often called his like bubble um, appearance. Like he was a Greek God version of himself. I think he's been mm-hmm. quoted like that. And that was what Porzingis was supposed to be as well. Kind of this yeah. like seven, three, like just guy that could go anywhere, could move any at any speeds, move like a guard, you know, play in space, shoot the ball really fast, like kind of this new age big man. And what, what it's kind of happened amazingly due to one, his body hasn't held up because like, I don't think we realize what it took to build a big man to do all those things. And yeah. Yeah. And and I can kind of jump in from here. So I did an entire thing on Chris stops in his frame when he entered the draft. I talked to like when he was at Sevilla, I talked to the like strength and conditioning trainer who was there and like, they had a full plan in terms of like how to, biomechanically add weight to his frame in order to make it so that he would not struggle. I mean, Kristaps was very like people talk about Victor Wembanyama being skinny. Victor Wembanyama is like 230 pounds, 240 pounds, somewhere mm-hmm. in that ballpark. Kristaps was like 200 or something like that. It was, he was drastically skinnier. Right. And I think that also in terms of like development, this is why I think that Vic's people are kind of saying that they've done no work on his frame. We're going to let NBA teams do all of the work on his frame. That's we, interesting. We want like we want you to be able to mold him out of clay basically for what you want as opposed to like, you know, trying to make it so that he can manage the French league better, right? It's fascinating, so it, right? Yeah, that's that's yeah. I did not know that. That's int- about Vic, but yeah, it is. It's kind of crazy that Vic is almost like 
the Chris Stapps is the Vic cautionary tale in a lot of ways. He is. I, I actually think that that's the comp. Like people are making the like Chet comp more often, but like Chet is only seven foot. Like Chet's super long and he's super skinny, but Chet. Chet has a very different body type. Kristaps is almost like the middle ground between Chet and Vic. Almost, mm-hmm. you know, as tall as Vic, but like almost as skinny as Chet when Chet was coming up, um, yeah. or when Kristaps was coming up and when Chet was coming up. Right. So it, it's interesting trying to figure out like how, how do we make these guys be able to stay healthy while the game is changing around them so drastically. What kind of adjustments do we have to make to developing their frame to where it makes, you know, sense for them to be able to hold up over the long term. Right. And I think I think Kristoff's got caught in so much changing so fast. Yeah. That he kinda he's he started too late in some ways. I mean you to your point about sort of you talked about Miles Turner and the the skill set development happening too late. I think it's an, in a lot of ways it's the body happening too late for Kristaps yeah. and that generation. Whereas you know Vic is coming into the league where it's more established that this is how big the court is. Whereas when Kristaps comes in the league, the court is literally like kind of widening as it speaks. And so Kristaps yeah. is still a good player, but he looks he's, he looks he doesn't look like what he was he was promised to be. He's a little immobile and slow. So. Yeah. There's that element of it um, with space, but there's also something that I think is really interesting that's happening. I think there are two things, and this is what I talk about in the chapter that I sent you a while back. Um, yeah. One is I think closeout technique has changed. If we want to get really nerdy about like sort of how yeah, please you, let's do it. How you close out? Like you were for a long time, we were governed by this idea that you would chop your feet to close out. Uh, and you know, then you would stay in front of your man. You would kind of come out with your hand up the same way, and or like be, jump to your man, like yeah, like straight like, to your man, yeah. yeah, like jump into it and go like that, yeah. So the and the goal was sort of like let's keep him in front. But now what you're seeing is that that is like just way too slow to cover all this space. You know, too many choppy steps. I make the comparison in the book where. Um, Otto Bolden, who's a track and field star, said something along yeah. the lines of, uh, to reach your, I'm going to find the exact line. I should probably figure out, but basically to reach your maximum speed in a hundred meter dash takes 60 meters, right? So like once you reach your maximum speed, it's really hard to slow down. You do need to chop your feet, but 60 meters corresponds to how, like, that's like more than the whole court. So why are we like chopping our steps? Like, when players are so near, I, I found, I found the quote for you. Um, <laughs> I was just able to hit control F. So it was a lot easier. Yeah. Um, Otto Bolden, the excellent NBC track and field analyst and two time hundred meter Olympic medalist once told ESPN that sprinters need anywhere from 30 to 50 meters to reach their top 30 speed. to 50 meters. Yeah. That means 30 to 50% of a 100 meter race is in an acceleration stage where sprinters are not yet going as fast as they possibly can. That distance translates to anywhere from 100 to 160 feet. The entire basketball court, the whole damn thing is 94 by 50. More to the point, the space one covers when closing out on a shooter is a tiny fraction of that space. For the sake of argument, let's say a player must cover 20 feet on a closeout. That's a damn long closeout, and it corresponds to six meters. The first 100-meter sprinter to reach their top speed in six meters will make Usain Bolt look like a tortoise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 it, 
essentially the point was like if you're you chop your feet when you're near your maximum speed because you actually need to do that to slow down but if you're that far away from reaching your maximum speed like why are you purposely i think i use it's like a grand canyon size abundance of caution yeah so now you have a lot of people are being taught you're kind of taking normal steps and you're kind of doing this like horizontal lunge to the side like kind of almost like jumping as close to the legs into the landing space as possible without hitting them but then like kind of coming to the side and then putting your arm up so that that's one thing that's happened which i think has allowed people to cover more of the court where it's you know we're not as worried about chopping our feet i think then the other thing that i think has happened that's actually interesting that kind of goes into our our question that we can talk about is you know there's a there's a well chronicled like kind of rise of zone thing happening in the nba now but what's really happening i think b is that man schemes are more collective no matter whether you're playing drop trap switch there's so much more sinking and recovering and choreography and low man rotation and i use the example of um toronto and miami in the book i wouldn't say necessarily they're the most modern principles now i'm thinking more like two or three years ago where their defenses were like kind of everybody sunk to the nail and almost opened up the shooter because they could then sprint back out it was almost like they were they were almost. I compare Miami's defense like uh, you're breathing into a paper bag, and it's going out, in and out, and in and out, and in and out. And it's like kind of more of a five man choreography, whether you're playing man or zone. And that was how they beat Giannis in the playoffs a couple of years ago in the bubble. That type of sort of collective, like kind of covering space, disrupting perimeter, like kind of hot zones, rather than like always covering your man. How you're kind of the digging down and sort of all that, that I think has really intensified over the last three or four years. And I think that may offer one way to cover space is if you're no now doing it as kind of, we're not going to let you reach like kind of the nail where you can go one step to the rim. Yeah. That might be, that might be kind of the platform for some innovation. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. 
NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Well, and this is where like, this is just like so different from the college game as well. It's like almost only NBA basketball or even the international game because there's just so much more ground to cover in the NBA. Yeah. These are the best shooters in the world for the most part. There are a lot of really great shooters in EuroLeague, for instance. I think all of them have been snatched up by EuroLeague teams in Europe at this point. Um, there are some good shooters across Europe in general, but for the most part, it's all of the best shooters in the NBA mixed with all of the best athletes in the NBA um, combined basically with the greater space of the 23 foot nine inch three point line, which mm-hmm. is just totally different compared to international basketball and college basketball condensing the space. It's right. why in college basketball, you can see a more traditional pack line scheme actually find success where like guys do sink to the nail regularly and then close out on shooters. Because frankly, like if you're what? late on your closeout against a college shooter, you might end up okay at the end of the day as long also, as you get a late contest, right? It's less distance too. It's less distance as well. So like in the NBA, those closeouts just become so much farther. This is why it drives me fucking crazy when people are like, oh, the NBA, no, none of these guys try on defense. Oh no, God, none it's, of them it's, it's so much no, further from the truth. It's just fucking impossible to play defense in the NBA right now. That's right. So I actually love that that framing of it because in this chapter I kind of pose that question from a different way because there's always these complaints. I think this complaint has slowed defensive innovation. This yeah. idea that like, oh, what are we supposed to do? We can't touch them. Yeah. And one of the things I say is that when you remove hand checking, what originally happened is that I mean, this idea that you would have to step and slide and step and slide, always yeah. be low, this militaristic war defense just got totally exposed because it didn't come with – like, if you're – I make the comparison to football in the book. Do you think – do quarterbacks step and slide with their receivers? Of course not. Yeah, no, not of course really. not. You can't. Like, you, yeah. you can't. I mean, think about how much space how, – how are you supposed to cover um, – who's the best receiver in football right now? Um, uh, Tyreek Hill, Jamar Chase, someone yeah. like that. Yeah. Imagine if Justin ima- Jefferson. Yeah. Imagine if like you had you could never cross your feet while covering Justin Jefferson. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying now. Yeah. Like, so what they do is they you know they cross step, they 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 flip their hips, they turn around. Basketball's become much more of that type of environment by just spreading it out. So 
once you kind of once people realize that like stepping and sliding without a hand check all the time was just making you less mobile and frankly more vulnerable to sort of the stuff James Harden was doing where he's kind of yeah. surging. So that's like another huge way that defense has started to catch up. But it took a long time for that reason because everyone's like, it's impossible to card these ass. What if you instead said it was way too easy before and this is what the normal should be? You know what I mean? Like it's the I same do, thing yeah. because again, the normal it, it's about space. It's if you're doubling this the spatial the space of the court with no more people to fill it, they everybody's got to cover more ground. So like, why would you cling to a a way of defense that was for this contained of a space when it's not that space anymore? Like in some ways, like the defense was let off the hook for sixty years. That's I think well, the it- other way to look at it. Yeah, honestly, I think that that's a great way to frame it. Like, if you have to cover five feet of defense guarding Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, it's theoretically a little bit easier to do that. The problem was that Kareem, in his innovation, was that he was incredibly long and seven foot two and had incredible touch. And then, like, nobody was really that big, that long, that athletic Mm -hmm. to the point where, like, I've talked about this a lot recently because of Vic, and I wonder how... Victor Wembanyama would have looked back in the 1960s coming up at UCLA and how Kareem would have looked now if he was asked to come up in this era. And I think people, I I just keep saying this, like college basketball literally banned the dunk for a decade because Kareem was so dominant and they couldn't figure out how to stop him. Uh, So like, it's interesting where I think that teams have now gone with this in order to like kind of cover this space is, and this is where we can transition into the idea of what teams most espouse these modern basketball ideals, right? Mm-hmm. They've started to draft like long athletes that they think they can develop into shooters, right? Or develop yeah. into passer playmakers in the team that like, to me clearly is most trying to go down this pathway and trying to like, cultivate this grand new project almost of basketball players is Toronto, right? Like they're almost exclusively outside of Fred Van Vliet, who was like an undrafted player and they didn't have to expend a lot of resources on. They just loved them and picked them up. They're almost exclusively selecting, putting resources into players that are hyper long, very laterally athletic, um, really fluid, can cover ground at an exceedingly high level while also having ball skills, right? Like that is their MO to a T Mm -hmm. and they, I think feel like they can teach guys to shoot. They can't teach length. They can't teach athleticism. They can't teach like they can probably teach a little bit of processing ability, but processing ability is something that is being developed. Right. And I think that what they're hoping to do is to be able to cover the ground of the court their innovation, I think what they hope is going to be more defensive than offensive, that their length is going to better allow them to cover the space that you have so eloquently described in your book mm-hmm. a bit more easily and confidently and competently, while still also with someone like Precious Achua, you know, Pascal Siakam rotating over from the weak side, Scotty Barnes rotating over from the weak side, being able to protect the rim with just enough length in there to be able to right. make it work. 
So like getting guys that are six foot six to six foot eight with project, seven foot two wingspans. Project six nine or project yeah, uh, vision yeah, six yeah. nine or project six eight. I I've definitely screwed up that one. Yeah. You know, actually Toronto is doing something even beyond that. I think I want to blow I'm gonna blow your your mind a little bit. They're one of the teams that are thinking in these terms. Memphis is the other one I, I was harping on last year. Yeah. It's not just that they it's not just about defense. What they are doing is not just how do we cover open spaces. It's also how do we pin you into narrow spaces with the mm. way they crash the offensive glass, their style of play. What they're attempting to do is like kind of basically like pin you on the baseline. And Memphis too, to some degree. It's a full court strategy because their logic is I can, we can send more people into tighter spaces and force you to send more people into tighter spaces and if we don't score on the offensive glass, if we don't sort of kind of basically like burrow you down into like this area that you can't use. I, I think this fits Memphis really, really well, actually. I, I think is, they're even more than Toronto. I think they're the team that fits us because yes. Toronto tries to play up tempo offensively a little bit more often than Memphis does um, outside of John Morant, just like flying up and down the court, just because Toronto has all these ball handlers who can grab and go. And it's the best way for them right. to create offense. Um, Memphis particularly, I think is a great example here. Yeah. And they, they call this a possession game, right? Because their logic is if we get an offensive rebound, we're getting more possessions than you. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, in Toronto, Memphis to some degree, but Toronto as well, they're pinning you in because they know that if for some reason they don't get the offensive glass, they have these this flexibility to beat you back down the floor anyway. Yep. So and Memphis in particular as well, I mean, they they run sets that really spread you out, but like kind of John Moran is just kind of ramming the gla- the the basket all the time. Yeah. And so that forces you to stay in on him. They crash off that. All their rebounds are small rebound are like not bouncing far away they're bouncing in and so what ends up happening in is they they again pin you in and the team that the first person that i i actually read about this in the book do you remember those post carmelo anthony teams in denver yeah like the Ty lawson gallinari mm-hmm. iguodala was there for a year like those teams yeah, yeah, yeah. so george carlton discovered something really fascinating that like he almost took too far, but I think you see this with those teams, Memphis and Toronto as sort of the spiritual ancestors. He started to place players out of bounds during half court sets, like offensive players. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, instead of doing like one, four flat where like they're all on the baseline, he literally would put those players out of bounds, mm-hmm. which seems really ridiculous, right? Like why would you can't do anything out of bounds if you're a player, but what it would do is that, the other players would follow the defenders would follow by osmosis right and they would find themselves too far into the basket when ty lawson or a flalo or gallinari or who else did they have on those teams of slashes wilson chandler yep. those types of players would go one-on-one in this open space and by the time they beat their first man the other guys were basically too far underneath the rim to do anything about it so they literally pinned their opponents in uh they got rid of that loophole the NBA in 2014, right. they said you can't put players out of bounds. That's not allowed. 
Um, but just think about how counterintuitive that is. First of all, by the way, it's like we're improving our chances by like kind of move, removing players from the court. Well, you're if, well. Think think about how much easier it is to play offense in three on three than it is five on five, right? right. Just because there's less space to operate. So it, it weirdly does actually make a lot of sense, yeah. even though it's counterintuitive. Yeah. And now that that it that's very similar to when the Bucks kind of were big on the dunker spot a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. With Giannis, it's the same logic. You know, you're too deep to do anything about his drives. And well, the, I think the other thing that those Denver teams did is that they drove to the rim. And again, very similarly to what you're saying in terms of shrinking the court, they drafted Kenneth Reed, who's going to mm-hmm. come in and just crash the glass constantly. And they made Kenneth Reed yep. like a valuable NBA player just by doing that at the end yeah, of the absolutely. day. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Like it's a real one. So if you can't, if you can't, if if you uh if you can't make your opponent play in less of a space offensively, you can make them play in less of a space defensively. I think you're going to see more teams start to do that and kind of consider what I call like a full court strategy of just like almost like if you think about it in soccer, like you're basically trying to like keep the um like keep the defense like pinned in rather than letting them play a high line. Yeah. I think it's kind of like that. So that that's an innovation that's interesting to me. I'm curious to well, see how that goes in the next. Well, few and what, years. what you see with NBA teams particularly is they try to like overload you defensively on one side, mm-hmm. right? And this is exactly what you're saying. They're trying to shrink the court, trying to shrink the space defensively. The problem is that guards have gotten so good now at hitting that cross corner kick out, mm-hmm. where it's much harder to overload the side now. Uh, defensively, because if a guard hits that cross corner kick out to a wing who's like on an empty side of the court and has ball skills, they can just attack, right? Yeah. They can, they're in open space. They're in oceans of space. And also, I think this is why you see a ton more sets. And I think that there's a even greater upper boundary for this. Um, a lot more empty side ball screen sets, right? Where offensive teams will actually overload the weak side of the court. Then they'll just have like a one five action on the other side and force essentially a help defender to come over from the strong side. Or if you don't, you're screwed, right? Because if you're one five empty with John Morant as the one, there's no one that's staying in front of him and he's just going baseline and he's going to get a floater or he's going to go into the middle and get a floater or he's going to dunk on your head. Like there's just, you have to make those decisions so quickly that the way that that's almost like it's so, so difficult. I think for defenses to deal with like these empty side actions, like those are the ones where I'm just like, Oh, this is, this is almost like curtains. Right. Well, I think uh, the big, goal of offenses is how do we set up our empty side because if everybody knows you're trying to go empty side that's why you swing around and back you know the one team if you're asking to me this question of which nba roster is best constructed with yeah let's let's move to that i think i have this fully now i think i have an answer to this i think the answer is boston that's my answer as well for what it's worth i think what boston was doing defensively last year where they put rob williams on the corner shooters instead of the bigs which meant he essentially could just per- patrol the back line. What they did and, with- and this isn't new, by the way. Like Milwaukee has done this with Giannis. They just did it with a center next to him with Brooke. Yeah. Like, the whole thing was that Giannis could run baseline to baseline with his length, his athleticism, be able to just wreak havoc everywhere as a help defender. But Milwaukee did it with center, and Boston did 
the Giannis role with its center. Yeah, also Boston switched one through four while yeah. also doing that. And I know Boston's also had has a team that's built around guards that can play up guards. Uh, yeah. bigs that play down and then crucially i think this year with how they added malcolm brogdon they now have like kind of tall playmakers and smaller just like attackers you know where they can just kind of search through that space but obviously they don't have rob williams so it, it kind of throws the whole thing off but what boston did to kind of combine those lit to those two layers with also kind of we're not taking away our normal help principles. Like I think a lot of teams made the mistake of like, well, we switch, so that's all we have to do. But like actually you switch and you have to still do all that court shrinking everywhere else. Right. Um, to me, that was kind of the cl- – I mean, that defense last year for Boston was the best defense uh, of the spaced out era is what I call it. I think they had the lowest defensive rating of yeah. any team in the last eight years. Um, and obviously they started slow and they didn't do that, that the whole time. Um, so I think that, that to me is about as close as it gets, because what you're, what you're doing is you're saying our biggest guy doesn't need to be at the rim where you would think to put your biggest guy. He needs to just sort of, we're going to put our biggest guy in the perimeter in different ways. We're not going to start him at the top. I mean, like what Cleveland sometimes does with Evan Mobley at the top of the zone is interesting. I think like once you sort of get out of the mode of like our tallest guy's got to be by the basket, you, you can open yourself up to some interesting kind of strategies. Yeah. And to be honest, that's kind of why I'm like a little bit questionable on the Minnesota ideal, right? With Me what too. they're doing with Gobert and Towns, because I just worry that they're not going to be able to keep Rudy around the basket enough to be able to make him work in the way that he works in the regular season in the playoffs, while also creating a ton of scramble situations by having teams that will just put four perimeter players out there and make Carl Towns run around off ball actions more than on ball actions. Yeah. That's what I'm more worried about with Towns is just like being able to, you know, guard Devin Vassell in space, like what happened against San Antonio. Yeah. That was early. That was this ugly. Season, right. Yeah. I mean, so. and honestly, I've been thinking for a long time that like as great a defender as Gobert is like, I have been a little, I, I would love to have seen the jazz be more aggressive, switching him out onto, perimeter players that's the thing i think he can kind of do that i think he can but for whatever reason like i thought that they should have had him guard Kawhi leonard in the 2021 playoffs i mean that sounds like wild but like why put him on like terrence Mann when you can just move terrence Mann from the play like i would have put him on Kawhi, and at least then he'd been involved and and i don't know if he if it's that that he doesn't want to do that or if you know he feels like he's best at the rim or it's hard to reimagine him that way. Or I think in the case of Utah, a lot of it is like, who do we have behind him? Minnesota has less of that problem because I mean, the other really important player from Minnesota in their future is Jaden McDaniels for this reason. Cause yes. like, if you're going to put somebody out here, that's big, you kind of need to have somebody back here who can sort of be a facsimile of that. And he's your best chance. But yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm I'm, I'm a little uh, – I wasn't – I was a little skeptical of Minnesota coming into the season. Well, and to go back to Boston real quick, the other thing that I think Minnesota is doing, which is interesting that, you know, they're not really taking a cue off of Boston, but th- they do have these guys, is having bigger guards, right? You mm-hmm. mentioned the fact that they're playing guys like Marcus Smart, Malcolm Brogdon, Derek White, et cetera. Um, Derek White's a terrific defender. Malcolm Brogdon – 
good defender, super strong. Like he can get hit by the smaller guards a little bit more often than what I think like gets portrayed maybe. Um, but a good defender, nonetheless, conscientious, super strong, very long. And then Marcus Smart, obviously won defensive player of the year last year. Do I think he should have won that? Probably not. But like, he's at least a top 15 defender in the NBA, something like that. And if he's um, not, Jason Tatum is rapidly jumping up that Totally. Post. I think that's and the Jaylen's other. Jalen's a killer defender as well. Like they can go super, super big. They can go like Jason and Jalen almost at the one and two if they want now. And then what is a one Horford. and two? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But then like go Horford and Rob Williams at the four and the five. And then you just figure out like what to put around them. Do you put smart? Do you put Brogdon? Do you put X, Y, and Z? Right. So, right. Yeah. So the other thing that's interesting about Boston to this point is that you're seeing this without Rob Williams. Like it, a lot of it really falls apart though. You kind of need does. all these elements. Yeah. Like I don't believe their defense has the same bite to start this year. I don't, where do they rank well, it, right now? And it's weird because like Rob Williams has this random superpower where he is like maybe the best like shot blocker of jump shots I've ever seen. And it's like, like he's like the best yeah. jump shot contester. Um, it's why I'm really high on there's a kid at Dayton and I'm going to be there. There will be something coming on Deron Holmes very soon. Um, there's a kid at Dayton, Deron Holmes, who has this same superpower of being able to block jump shots. And it's why I'm way higher on him than most other draft evaluators are because his ability to like contest those jumpers in space is super valuable while also blocking two and a half shots a game and like being able to protect the rim. Right. So it's interesting trying to like navigate all of the different ideals, but like Rob Williams is almost, he's like a defensive unicorn like weirdly well like, that, that's see that's a funny thing like i wonder if yeah. they're going to be more rob williams's the other guy i think it was Mitch, mitchell robinson if you're in yeah. that commerce but what's interesting is so i had this uh, like imagine if you could there's also the intimidation factor that i think is something to consider imagine if you could take like the intimidation of a rim protector and just move that around the court yeah like that's sort of like kind of I that's sort of the uh, ideal. The other thing about Boston, though, and I mean, the other answer I had to this question was Golden State, just because of how much of the court they actually just extensively use. Like, if everybody yeah. uses a lot of the court, Golden State still uses more of it. Um, but the other thing about Boston, I think, is you're seeing a lot is just there's this space like kind of around the nail, out to the three point line. Where if you've got guys like Tatum, Brown, these like kind of long perimeter defenders, Herb Jones, Jaden McDaniels, yeah. uh, if you're looking at Toronto, maybe like an OG Ananobi, um, yeah. there is like a certain skill, and even guards like I mean Van Fleet, this is what he's great at. Um, Derek White, smart, this is like what he's great at. The ability to kind of play those spaces like from the nail extended out, and to be there early to stunt to kind of go back to kind of essentially be like kind of a roadblock, like an intimidating roadblock. I kind of think of like kind of the nail area of like, if you're driving from the top, we're going to just do everything we can to prevent you from getting through there. And we're well, going to make, and by the way, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of these guys have consolidated onto the same teams. Right. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Like, I, I think there's, there's that, no question about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, like teams like Boston, Toronto, etc. They're Miami to an extent as well. Miami's a little bit different because they just, you know, try and go out star hunting and then try and figure out the other stuff on the fly. Um, but yeah. like, it, it's not an accident that these guys consolidate on the same teams. I don't think. For sure. I mean, the, yeah. And then the other piece I was going to say is that like, once you drive and you're kind of in those X out rotations, who can yeah. cover that most ground? The largest. I actually look at a team that is not doing this that I think explains like way more of their shit start than what has been reported is Philadelphia on yeah. both ends. The gain now is what happens the moment you're kind of trying, you, you've sort of created your advantage and then you're trying to maximize it with like well-timed cuts and movement. There's a choreography to all of that off ball movement on both ends. And, and Philly is still playing with the, I would say the like kind of Houston 2018 like standing is spacing element or we react rather than proact on defense to those spaces. So, well, they're playing very passive defense. Like you watch Joel Embiid in ball screen coverages right now, like last year. And I think that part of this is physical because Joel is not healthy. He has the plantar fasciitis thing. But like last year he was like, not quite at the level of the screen, but maybe just like a step behind the level of the screen mm-hmm. and was like actually trying to like get into ball handling shit and like was making it more difficult. Right now you watch Philly and he's way back. Uh, maybe hands down. Four, yeah. Hands down four or five steps mm-hmm. behind the screen in full drop in it's just way harder to make those rotations in space. Once the guard gets penetration and is able to hit that kick, able to hit that little drop off behind Joel. Once he finally has to commit, Mm -hmm. it's just hard. It's just really, really hard. There's that. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge factor. And then you just, I mean, Harden is not proactive off the ball. Maxi is not proactive off the ball. The only guy in their team that like fits the mold of like someone who is just really good at kind of, playing and covering what I call sort of from the corner to the slot. You know, the slot's like sort of the big spot yeah. around the yard so people know. The corner of the slot and then slightly in, who's like really good at just sort of constantly shifting in those spaces and cutting through. There's only one guy in their team that does that well, and that's D'Anthony Melton. So whenever he's in the game... Yeah, I would it, say Thibel too, but Thibel's hard to get on the court offensively. Thibel's yeah. good at it on one end. D'Anthony Melton's good at it on both ends. Right. So he's the only guy who is like really constantly shifting in those spaces and you can't win that way anymore. The defenses are too smart. You have to move them and you have to address that movement. Every other good team, you know, Philly's going to win a lot of games, score a lot of points. They have a great, they have a lot of talent, but the thing that's causing their start that teams are figuring out is that they don't have those, they don't play those spaces very proactively and so they have no flow to their game that's the space that the best new defenses are trying to take away and the best offenses are trying to exploit there's just this there's this whole choreography that's becoming more and more important in those spaces so like i mean when you say who's the most modern team the teams that like kind of are activating those areas on both ends to me is the answer like that those are the areas that don't matter I'm glad you mentioned Golden State as well, because Golden State's another team that like really just fits this paradigm of constant motion. This is something that like they're the one team that I feel like weirdly teams have never felt like they can copy. 
And part well, of it is like I don't think they can because you can't copy Steph. You, you can't, can't copy, copy Steph. Curry. Yeah, you can't yeah. copy Steph Curry. That's like kind of what it comes down to. But even stylistically, they haven't really tried to like they tried to copy the switching style with Draymond Green, but offensively they haven't really tried to like copy much of like the crazy motion principles, right? And it's a bit strange to me that, and look, it's obviously because I think teams feel like we don't have two of the five best shooters of all time. So, you know, what's the point, but I wonder if there is like some of that off ball cutting principle stuff. And like, I guess that, you know, look, you know, Steve Kerr's not reinventing the wheel. He took a lot of these principles from San Antonio, right? Like it's not like this is brand new stuff, but it does feel like is the league has gotten more spacing conscious. And while you may not have two of the best shooters of all time, you might have three of the top 20 shooters in the right. NBA and you still have to guard those guys out there. It feels like there's more space for guys off the ball to just be cutting and diving and sitting in the dunker spot and kind of constantly be moving and constantly running actions for guys to get open. And we've seen a little bit more of it, but I feel like, again, to talk about like hitting upper boundaries, it's weird to me that we haven't seen more teams copy that because Golden State has hit an upper boundary in some level. But like then you look at Dallas, for instance, and I remember when, you know, Bob Volgaris left Dallas, like one of the things that he mentioned was like every time you pass the ball, there is like a it's something like a two percent chance of a turnover, right? So if you add up all of those passes over a possession, it's like between two and 3%, then you're increasing your turnover rate to a higher level, which means you like, again, you look at golden state, a team that runs this like heavy motion, you know, ball movement offense, they consistently have one of the highest turnover rates Mm -hmm. in the NBA. It's kind of a, I get why people do it. And I think it's why golden or why Dallas particularly ran such a Luca and continues to run such a Luca centric more, more so than ever this year, I would say. Right. <laughs> um, and well, yeah, like they, 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 their idea is like limiting turnovers and thus increasing offensive efficiency that way. So there, there are a lot of different ways to skin the cap, but it's weird to me that like we haven't seen more of like diff- more teams right. try and steal what Golden State is doing. So I actually don't. So what you're talking about is essentially why I structured the book the way I did it is this holy war between these two sects, Golden State and Houston, and there are descendants yeah. of those teams. I mean, the, re- the, the one of the reasons that Golden State stays on top, I mean, I think the biggest reason is they have Steph Curry. I mean, like, I I, yeah. <laughs> I said, you know, I mean, like, it, I know this is like a thing to say, like, that we is obvious, but I think it, it's kind of like the three-point era in general. It's like the impact. It's weirdly that, not obvious enough. <laughs> yeah, well, that's sort of, I mean, he re- the reason he's on the cover of this book is because he, he very much symbolizes the point that's being made here, which is we've actually underplayed this thing that we can't stop talking about. And I think yeah. we have underplayed the impact of Steph Curry, obviously, on and off the court. But, I mean, the fact that, like, someone like that can inspire that level of terror that far from the basket and consistently, constantly prove it over and over again is just – I mean, no team is ever going to have – like, there's just no – there's nobody who can be like that. I think he's that special. I would say that I think a lot of the league, even as compared to, like, two years ago – I, I wrote a piece in the newsletter that I cite. I don't remember if I actually cite it 
specifically in the book or just this idea. I thought the bubble was a really interesting inflection point for this where you had, especially in that second round, you had uh, the teams that like kind of were higher in cutting, you know, Miami was like kind of playing a lot more like golden state that year. Denver, uh, very much is kind of like a cut and move and like kind of team. Uh, ooh, my bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, um, there was one of the series. Oh yeah. Like the Lakers, I think that you were like, they beat Houston, who was a very stand around team. The teams that kind of cut in the open spaces beat the teams that stood in the open spaces. Right. So in some ways it was almost like golden state beat Houston again. <laughs> like I know this is like a vast oversimplification, but I think it's something to think about. And actually, the team that was most affected by this, and the other, I would say, the other main character of this book is Milwaukee, where Milwaukee was a stand around team, spread it out, and there was something about the way they lost to Miami that convinced them to change some of their spatial alignments to be a little bit more Golden Statey. And I do think that, like, I mean, you're seeing a lot more forty five cuts. The than you used to. You're seeing a That's lot true. more lifts, a lot more drifts. Um, you're seeing a lot more kind of... I think you're seeing more people crashing the paint. You're seeing a lot more duck-ins, more splits. I do think that Golden State is being copied. I just don't think you can get the element that is Steph Curry. So it doesn't look yeah. like it. And so I still think it's very much like kind of... We're still seeing teams that are kind of... Dallas is very much like kind of a Houston disciple. Yeah, same with like aside. Atlanta. Which is Atlanta. weird because like Atlanta has Travis Schlank who built the roster who was in Golden State during the time of Steph and Clay. And then, you know, right. obviously I think it has to do with the fact that Trey doesn't move as well off the ball. That's the other thing with Steph that makes it all work yeah. so well is like his aggressiveness and willingness to screen and move off ball and just fly around constantly. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can't so like you can't you can't replicate that even. You can't replicate that level and that level of sort of energy and just, uh, I mean, it's a sort of like kind of like saying, like, why aren't there more players like Giannis? It's kind of the same idea there on some level. There is like, it is kind of the, the same obsessiveness for things that other people don't have. But I, I really do think that the league has become more Golden Statey in particular over the last three yeah. or four years. Like you're seeing, you're seeing, I mean, the other thing that's sort of happening that's interesting is you're seeing more kind of post duckins and you know small on smaller kind of quick duckins of the post you throw over the top um yeah. i think you're seeing a lot more offensive rebounding that was sort of something that i think golden state was always relatively yeah, like higher the, the on versus... duckins with like sean livingston and things like that early right. in that run yeah. yeah you are seeing more of that that's true so i do think the league has copied golden state it's just they can't copy the magic part yeah yeah, you might be right schematically. Maybe they are copying and it just like looks so drastically different because Yeah, this, this is a good premise. I'll say this is a good premise for a book, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's but, like, the split between the split between Houston and like like the Suns, aka Golden State, because by the way, the seven seconds or less Suns. Steve Kerr was there, right? Yeah, but Mike D'Antoni was in Houston, so it's like kind of it's well, like Mike kind D'Antoni's of, the patron saint of all of this, so right? Like, so it's kind of that's why I kind of say it's kind of like I use I call it a holy work because it was like kind of it's like a two religions sex. They kind of basically think the same thing, but they just argue over what they don't like about each other. Yeah, and that's kind if, of the idea. If Mike D'Antoni's the patron saint, Daryl Morey is the um, like devil on the shoulder. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, like, 
who's the Martin Luther of this conversation? <laughs> you know, like if we had like Catholicism, Nelson? Catholicism and uh, Protestantism. I'm not. I'm. I'm Jewish, so I can say these things. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it, and that's sort of the way, and, and it's like that rivalry pushed the whole league forward because yeah, it did to all of to ever to them they were just like kind of bashing their heads against each other. It was kind of like a cold war too because like they didn't drastically fight, but like there was a lot of like underhanded like. Do you remember that I, I cite this in the book that panel that Bob Myers did after the twenty seven threes at Sloan. Uh, where he was like, take the rock, take 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 our opponents for example. You're down twenty, you need a three, like step back three, okay. But sometimes you just need to score. Uh, do you remember mm, this panel? Yeah, yeah. There was I a don't lot remember of, the like, exact. I remember the quote vaguely. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like Cold War stuff and like <laughs> kind of going on. But I, I think that they were their rivalry. Where, where does where does the light years fit into the Cold War? <laughs> <laughs> Man. But I, I, I really where did, do. Where does Samus Fundy, Andy, and Andy Lou fit into the Cold War? Let's see. They're, um, <laughs> God. Who's like, uh, who's like, yeah, I, I don't know religious history. Do you, off do the you top read, of my head, Game well of Thrones? Have you read a, uh, Fire and Blood in the Game of Thrones book? I have never uh, watched Game of Thrones. I will not oh, lie. God. I have yeah. not. I the am people... into. I am into Lord of the Rings and I am into Star Wars. So I'm into other in, other mythologies. Yeah, I know you are. That's why I was like, are you into Game of Thrones at all? Andy and Sam are the blood and cheese for people who uh, (laughs) don't don't look that up necessarily if you don't want to know where House of the Dragon is going next year. But yeah, that's that's where this is going. I I hesitate to call them what the the uh, who are the two Hamlet or Shakespeare heroes, Rosencrantz and Gilderson or Stern. That's They're having me on their podcast. I shouldn't say these things about them. <laughs> I love them. They're the best. They're great. I, I, I but, love what they're doing so much. <laughs> but for real, that is very much like kind of the premise of the book is that this is the rivalry that pushed the whole league forward. And you could write a whole book about that rivalry, but um, I didn't. Wrote a little bit more grander, but I think that like in some ways the Rockets are more are just as significant to the development of basketball as the Warriors, even though the Warriors won on the scoreboard. I think that's right. I absolutely agree with that. Like, couldn't agree with that more. Those Rockets teams are going to come back and be, it's the same. They're the antecedent or like the direct descendant of the seven seconds or less Suns to me. Um, looking back, cause they're the team that pushed the league forward without winning a title at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and just like it, like there's a lot of talk about Don Nelson in there, uh, as kind of the positional, I mean, I have a whole thing about positionalists that I kind of hate that term. Uh, like, just there, sometimes There's you no can. Such thing is positionless. Yeah, I don't. I hate I, that like, term I think so positions much. are a thing. Yeah, especially yeah. defense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, you have to read that chapter, listeners. Please go read Mike's book. That's the <laughs> um, but yeah, no, just like kind of sometimes you study the the people that are most willing to just push the limits like too far are the ones that are the best to learn about innovation. You know, Don Nelson was the same way, you know, he's now revered in a lot of ways when in his time people were like, who the fuck is this guy? Well, and, and, and there's a difference sometimes between like innovation and success in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And like everyone then correlates it to, oh, this person was ahead of their time or they were, you know, they, they came too early. Right. Well, 
sometimes like it's not that they came too early it's that uh you know they they took it too far and they they weren't right uh, they weren't gonna win the title at the end of the day like houston um you know probably went a little bit too aggressively in one direction and didn't win because of it even if they pushed basketball forward which arguably to me is someone who just loves the sport and loves the game I care about that even I'm sure Daryl Morey does not think this, but yeah. like I care about that more than a title a little bit. Like to me, well, D'Antoni has more. said that, hasn't he? Like in some ways, yeah. like he's, he's more significant. Yeah. I mean, and just, I mean, we didn't even get into like kind of the way James Harden's, you know, everybody does that double step back now that James Harden does. Yeah. Like all of a sudden yeah. that was like, everybody mastered that footwork. Yeah. And that was just him and Damian Lillard. That's it. Yeah, yeah, it was just it was a hack and everybody got it. I mean, that is literally there's a whole chapter about that, about yep. just the way people move. And, you know, there's a Allen Iverson is a prominent figure in that chapter. Allen Iverson yeah. never won a title. So interesting. Damian Lillard also is like, you know, has not yet won a title. Like, and oh. he's someone that like kind of pushed this. Yeah. Well, the Blazers are four and one, aren't they? Yeah, here it comes, baby. <laughs> uh, Mike, do you have anything else you want to get off your chest before we uh, before we go here? I don't think so. It's just it's still available for pre-order. Uh, it's coming out November 1st. I guess the only thing I'd say is I'm, I'm sure this doesn't apply to most of your listeners, but um, if, you're a ba- if you're a skeptic about how the game has changed, if you kind of are a back-in-my-day type of person, I actually think this book is very much tailored to you. Um, uh, yeah, I, I can echo that. Like, look, the 25% of this book that I've read, um, I, I can say that this is not like a, you know, analytics first book that's, you know, going to frustrate the old heads and like all that stuff. It really does a good job of simplifying concepts that are complicated and that really explain why the league is going where it is and why it's not going to change anytime soon. Right. Like, I, I think that th- that's, that's the best compliment I can give you is you've written an incredibly readable book that distills complicated concepts, um, that are modern in nature into eminently readable ideals basically well, i appreciate that um that was definitely the goal i mean i i joke i have an uncle who's a big celtics fan but is very much a back in my day type of yeah. thinker and i would always i always i would joke to him i said you're ba- i'm basically thinking of you every time i write a sentence <laughs> yeah i um, think that's a i think that's the absolute best way like seriously it's how like i do that now when i write right. like i'm just like i want yeah i want like the most like i'm gonna write some advanced number stuff like but I think that it's you don't want to write above your audience just because you want to look smart, yeah. right? Well, I mean, like, it, and, and the truth is, it really isn't that complicated. I mean, we yeah, overcomplicate some of this. It's not rocket science, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, the other thing I'll say is, I, I, I mentioned you've probably seen this on Twitter with some of the giveaways, but instead of having clipboard graphics or X's and O's, what I've done is I sort of recreated the spatial alignments of I think thirty-two different plays in it's NBA amazing. history um, just to kind of give you a sense of just how the court has, how the alignments have changed. Um, so I think, I hope that those are really cool companions, maybe almost it's, I, I didn't want to do like, I didn't want to do like kind of abstract 
X's and O's. I wanted to do something where it was like, you've seen this moment, like now see it in a different way. Um, So hopefully that lands as well. And again, six of you have won free books out of guessing what this, which (laughs) plays I'm talking about. So you have to see what some of the other ones are. I think it's brilliant. I think it's super, super smart to do it that way because it, it really does emphasize just how tight we were in 1970 versus how spaced out everything is. And oh, by the way, the name of Mike's book is Spaced Great. Out. Good job. Please go buy this book. Go pre-order it. Go support Mike. He's a really sharp guy, as you can see, by this show. Uh, this has been the Game Theory Podcast. My uh, stuff for this week, I had a mock draft go live today. Please go read that. Um, I had positional rankings go live last week. Please go read those. And then coming next week, I have the start of a really fun project that I'm excited about. It's kind of a combo podcast and written com- uh, kind of story ideal. You guys will see it when it comes. The first one, it's I think. Very, it's very cool. Someone yeah, it's either going to come out Sunday or Tuesday. I can't remember which one, and then the written will come out me, Monday and Wednesday. Let me go check. Uh, oh. Let me go check our uh, calendar. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say I put in like, hey, like I got done with the first few of them. Um, you know, I put it into my yeah. channel a couple days ago, and I was like, yeah, yeah like, that's the first few of these. We should do it. Like, when when, that, when do you want these? Because I'm going to file the first one today. <laughs> that's uh, that's right, guys. Sam has his own channel in our in our Slack room. Well, I write like 50,000 words every month. So it's, also it's an your, editorial your, lift. <laughs> it's also, it's also your like kind of on like the opposite schedule of us. So it, it but it, awesome. is, it is still funny. Like I, the day I got invited into your secret channel was one of the, my favorite days as an athletic. <laughs> You're just like, what is happening here? I was like, Ooh, I'm in. Very cool. Cause not every editor is in this channel. I'm gonna be honest. Yeah, I think that people have jumped in and out as they've moved to different jobs. Like, I think uh, I think Bobby Clay used to be involved, but Bobby well, is you know he's, he's still at the Athletic, still at the Athletic. Just has moved you know to a different role. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, Khalid was there for a while. He's not at the company anymore and has moved on to bigger. No, for him, hopefully better things. Like, yeah, you know we. We, we bounce around, but uh, the, the channel is here to stay because I am here to stay at The Athletic. So uh, it, it's very enjoyable. Mike, uh, tell the people where they can find you online so they can get some of these giveaways yeah. and excited Well, things. unfortunately, the giveaways are over, um, at least until the book is released. But you can follow me on Twitter, Mike Prada MBA. It is spelled like the Italian handbag company and the Anne Hathaway movie, but not pronounced that way. It was Anne Hathaway in that movie, right? Yeah, nailed it. Yeah, okay, I got it right. Um, but yeah, you can find me there. You can order the book really anywhere you get books. Um, you can do it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, on whatever. If you had a choice, I would say order it through bookshop.org to support your local bookstore, but that doesn't do anything for me one way or the other. It's just, I think, a nice thing to do. You can order from the publisher. There are a couple excerpts out now on The Athletic and on SB Nation. There may be one or two others. We'll see. Stay tuned. I may have to go work on that. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it's just, you know, hopefully you enjoy the book. And like I said, I think it's for basketball fans of all types. Like, it's not – I really very much try not to make it a dense – like I mean, as yeah. I try to do all the time, but just – a lot of people think it's about threes. It's really not about threes. It's about the court. It's about yeah. the space that was resulted from the threes. So thank you so much for having me on.
This has been great, Mike. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe. Go to the YouTube channel, Game Theory Podcast, with Sam Vicini, and subscribe there as well. Uh, we'll be back next week with Adam Spinella to talk prospects. We're going to do a vibe check across the NBA as well. How are the vibes across the ba- league? Lakers bad. Sixers bad. Lakers bad. Philly bad. Things things bad there. Um, but there, there Wizards, surprising, Wizards, surprisingly not bad. Yeah, your 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 beautiful Washington Wizards are actually kind of fun. Uh, shout out Kyle Kuzma, who's been mm-hmm. really enjoyable. One of my most uh, prized, enjoyable watches thus yep. far this Modern, year. Modern Kyle Kuzma. He arrived mid prime from the Lakers, kind of like Karan Butler once arrived mid prime from the Lakers. There are a <laughs> lot of parallels there. I love it. That's great. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe. We'll be back next week with more. Until next time, we'll talk soon. <laughs>